Verse 14, Romans 9, 14. Get your hand in the air if you need a Bible today. Again, don't be shy. Get your Bible. This is a free gift to you. If you don't own one, please keep this. Read it, love it, share it, give it away, do whatever you want. Take as many as you'd like. Just open to Romans chapter 9. All right. Now, here's the deal. Um, We've got 16 verses to cover today, and so we have to move quick. Um, Otherwise, we'd be here forever. So we're covering 16 verses. And the reason why I'm even giving you this preface in the beginning is because we're not going to be able to spend as much time that I think we need to on all of the verses as we go through it, right? That there's going to be ideas and there's going to be things that are thrown out there that you're going to want to hear more about, right? You're going to be like, yeah, but, and well, how about this? How does this work out? How can you say this? How does this tie together? And on and on and on. And so I get that, but the, the, re- the reality is we just don't have the time in 45 minutes. And so like I told you last week, Uh, we're going to be having that theology pub and it's on Tuesday night. So two days from tonight, uh, we'll have our theology pub on Romans chapter nine and election. Okay. And so we're going to get into this chapter. We're going to answer your questions. We're going to push against doubts and we're going to discover together the depths to which God and scripture communicates this ideal. Okay. So it'll be Tuesday night, 7 PM at Beaver street brewery, uh, is where at least one of the tables will meet. Now, if we have, uh, the way we do it is we do it in tables of 10, uh, and then if we have more than 10, we'll set another table because we want to make the discussions um, actually discussions, right? Actually, where there's some dialogue happening. So if you want to be part of that, you have to sign up. Like, we need to know if you're going to be there so we can do reservations and all that too, okay? So um, if you want to do that, that's just jump over the Connect Desk, uh, fill out an info card, or you can go online later under, under these classes uh, and sign up online, okay? So I get it. There's going to be questions. We're going to move quick. And in Listen, in many ways, we're just going to let the scripture speak for itself. And and sometimes that's hard because a lot of, listen, any of us could have just been at home and read this and been like, okay, I get it. That's what scripture says. And sometimes we come here so we can break it down, look at commentaries and go from there. But in many ways today, I just want the scripture to speak for the scripture. In many ways, I just want God, I want us to understand this. That in the midst of Paul communicating what he communicates throughout the book of Romans, and here in chapter 9, we believe in a bigger author even beyond him. Right? So, so we take a step back and say, okay, Paul is saying this, but ultimately God is saying this. God is trying to communicate something about himself. And so he uses Paul to share these ideas. And so in many ways, let's just let God be God and say what God wants to say. And so in many ways, again, we're just going to do that as we go along. Now, um, last week we start, or we were in the second week of Romans 9, but we hit on some of these controversial issues. And we introduced this idea of election. Summed up in many ways by Paul saying, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Jacob I gave the promise to and Esau I did not. Jacob made a covenant pass to, and Esau will it not, even though Esau by birthright deserved it. And so we see God intervene, do something different, and then salvific history, salvation history continues forward the way that God would have it happen. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And so in other words, we said, God chooses some, but he doesn't choose all. God chooses some, but he does not choose all. 
And this is part of a bigger argument that Paul's making in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about the people of God, about the people of Israel, about Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters and saying, man, why don't all of the Jews know about Jesus? Why don't they believe in Jesus? We were his chosen people. The whole Old Testament scripture speaks about us. And yet I look around and many of my brothers and sisters don't know Christ. What happened? And he gives us as the reason why this happens. Ultimately, God chose some, but did not choose all. And man, I, I, was, I was standing in the lobby last week, and I heard even from some of our staff, as they talk to people, people leave and just like, I don't even know what to think right now. Like, like I, my mind is, is kind of somewhere over here. I left my mind in the room, and right now it's just my heart's working through and processing the implications of this. But what I hoped, what I hoped for today and what I hoped for last week and what I hope for us as a church everywhere we go and everything we talk about is that we would just fall more in love with Jesus, right? That we would make God very big and then celebrate his bigness and his sovereignty and his goodness in the midst of whatever theological doctrine we want to debate over. But we landed on last week a very celebratory moment that everything that we studied in chapter eight Remember, and we loved chapter eight, adoption and freedom and blessing and the truth that there is absolutely nothing in the world that can separate us from the love of God. It cannot happen. But we celebrated last week to say the only way that that can be true, that we could never be separated from God is if God was sovereign over salvation. If God could guarantee that when we're here, this would never happen. That God could guarantee for you and for me that he would bring us in, not we would pursue him because that just would not happen on our own because the truth is since creation, we've gone the other direction. Since the beginning of time, God said, be with me, know me, and we said, forget it. I'm gonna go do this. And we fell into this fracture world we exist in today. And so we said the only good news in the midst, is a, the midst of nine that we, that we really wanted to focus and celebrate on last week was the truth that because of this, all the promises of chapter eight come true for those who love Christ. And so uh, someone shared this with me this morning. Um, John Piper, author, pastor, theologian, very famous, maybe you read him. Um, he had this tweet yesterday. And he said, the depths of Romans nine exist to give an unshakable foundation for the heights of Romans 8, right? That the, the depths of Romans 9 exist so that we might see the heights of Romans 8, which is exactly what we shared last week, which makes me think Piper podcasts our church, which is fantastic. <laughs> You're welcome, John. That's what we celebrate even today as we move through some even harder passages. We move through some harder scriptures, some harder ideas to wrap our mind around today. We rest in the sovereignty and goodness of God that if he did not act this way, we would receive nothing. Okay? All right. So we have pushback. So does Paul. So does Paul. And so what he's going to do today is, is, is bring up two big questions that I think are at the heart level of our own questions. So stuff that we looked at last week, this idea of election, God choosing some but not all, and before Jacob and Esau were born. Remember, this had nothing to do with them. God chooses, and we have questions. And guess what? P 
people in Paul's day also had questions. And so he enters into this kind of uh, rhetorical conversation uh, with kind of some naysayers or some questioners, some doubters, and he's going to bring up two major arguments and pushbacks that we'll look at, and then he's going to answer them for us. And so we're going to get two pushbacks, two answers, and then we're going to talk about the good news at the end, okay? Last thing I want to say before we finally jump into the text. This passage has been known, and I get it, has been known to shrink churches, okay? Like, it's just been known where people say, okay, if that's true and you believe that, then I'm out the door. And so people, and, and listen, that's just the reality of us in general. That the minute we, we're confronted with something we don't like that much, we try and find another place where maybe we can feel like we like more of what's happening. We don't really want to wrestle. And even, you know, my buddy Curtis, Curtis who's up here, does sound, plays music here. He's even praying this morning. He's like, man, even in the midst of this, may we not just run the other, other direction. Even if we disagree, will we just wrestle? Right? Will we wrestle with God on these ideas and not just run the other direction? I, uh, I, was, I was thinking through this this week, and then right as I was kind of praying about this idea, Lord, don't let our church fall apart, um, I got this, this line from one of our pastors at another, uh, another campus, and he said this. It was a story, and I don't think it's real, but he shared it. It's like a joke, and it says this. Uh, it says, a man who had been stranded on a deserted island for two years was at last found. Okay, uh, Tom Hanks. The media accompanied the rescue team, and when they arrived, they saw that the man had built three huts. When asked what the huts represented, the man explained, well, this hut is my home. I'm like, oh, that's nice. They said, well, what's that one? Well, oh, that's, that's where I go to church. And the people thought, oh, well, that's, that's really neat that you would build a place of worship. Well, what's the third tent? He goes, oh, well, that's where I used to go to church. Okay. <laughs> and that is just the proclivity of man, Right? you know what? I don't like what's happening there. Let me go somewhere else. What I want us to do today, regardless of how you're feeling at the end of this, even if you just disagree with everything that God says, um, don't run. Don't run. Okay. Push forward. Ask questions. Engage. Dialogue. Wrestle with God. Because, listen, often in the wrestling is where we find the most joy. Okay. As we learn more about the character of God and how he is patient with us, even in our moments of stupidity. Okay. In our weakness, he is strong. All right, so let's do this. Pushback number one and answer number one. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, right? So, okay, if God is choosing, it says he chose Jacob, did not choose Esau before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. God chose Jacob, did not choose Esau. Doesn't that mean that he's unjust? Like, if God is just there and he's choosing and he's picking and he's giving blessing to one and not to the other, covenant to one and not to the other, promise to one and not to the other, and he's doing so based on absolutely nothing they had done, how is that just, right? How, how is that just for God to do that? And so before we get to the answer in verses 15 through 19, we'll just, what does Paul say? Is God unjust? By no means. And if you've been with us for any time here over the last year or so we've been in Romans, Paul uses this over and over and over. He'll put out a rhetorical question and then he'll say, by no means. In other words, it's incomprehensible. If you guys remember Princess Bride, it's 
Inconceivable, right? Now, that's like the fourth time we've told that joke here, but I couldn't not do it, okay? Because it's that true. <laughs> that as we approach even these, these questions, Paul's response, God's response to us in God, are you unjust, is you're crazy. Is that is inconceivable. There is absolutely no grounding or foundation for that idea. God is not unjust. God is just, God is faithful. And we said last week, if we divorce the character of God from what he communicates, we're not really listening to God. We can't separate the two. God is absolutely just. And so we're gonna see in 15 through 18, Paul's answer for why this is true. 15, 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So now Paul is quoting Exodus chapter 33. And he's going back to the Old Testament. And again, he's really addressing the Jews pretty hardcore here because in that grand context, again, he's going into what's going to happen with Israel, right? So he's using a lot of Old Testament stories to prove his point. And so in Exodus 33, what we see is Moses go to God and say, God, show me your glory, right? Like, God, show me your glory. I want to see you. And God's like, son, please, right? You couldn't handle this. He says, I, if I were to show up in front of you, if you were to see me in all my fullness, you'd, be, you'd drop dead just like that. You'd be done. You'd be undone. And so he comes up with a different plan. He just kind of flashed by. But he says these words to Moses. In the midst of that conversation, the pursuit of relationship with God and the pursuit of wanting to be close with God and the pursuit of wanting to be in a reconciled state with God, God says, I will show mercy to those whom I wish. And I will show compassion to those whom I wish. I will reveal my glory to those with whom I wish. It had absolutely nothing to do with Moses. And up to that point, listen, Moses was the man. Like Moses had done many great works for God, right? Moses had delivered his people. Moses had done great things for God. And yet even to him, he looks at him and says, listen, this has nothing to do with you. I'm going to show mercy to whom I want to show mercy. I'm going to show compassion to whom I want to show compassion. I will reveal my glory to who I want to reveal my glory. Is God unjust? No. Because God, the author and creator of the world, is the only one that can give mercy and give compassion. And because that's true, he gets to decide who receives it. Because we would be completely undone if we could just approach God without mercy and compassion. It doesn't work that way. God is not unjust. God is just in his bestowing of mercy on some and compassion on some. Okay. This is tough. This is tough for us to, to think about. 
But let's look at 17 and 18. He's going to go the other direction. So if 15 and 16, so if again, if we have Jacob and we have Esau, we have these, these two different realities, right? Jacob, he chose. Esau, he did not. And that's kind of carrying through all of chapter 9. Um, what we come to is in 15 and 16, what we just read, those are, he gave mercy and compassion to Jacob. He does not to Esau. Okay, this is just kind of the running theme amongst the whole text. And then 17 and 18 are more in the reality and vein of Esau. It says this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So I don't know if you guys remember the story of Pharaoh. Has anyone ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments? Charlton Heston, your parents didn't make you guys watch that? All right, well, you're welcome. Um, so Pharaoh, okay, king of Egypt, what happens is the, the, the Israelites are in uh, captivity in Egypt, and then Moses is born a Jew, gets floated down a river in a little bassinet, gets picked up, moves up the ranks, is raised up in the Egyptian kingdom, okay, begins to interact with Pharaoh. God then meets Moses, says, hey, Moses, I got, a, I got an idea. I want you to go ahead and go in there, talk to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. You're gonna deliver my people from Egypt. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, right? The staff and the beard, it was amazing. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Moses says, it's gonna go real bad for you. There's gonna be these plagues. You're not gonna want any of this. Pharaoh says, bring in, right? So plague after plague after plague continued to hit Egypt. Moses goes back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, hey, you see what's going on. I told you this was going to happen. Open your eyes. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, no. Goes back, plague and plague and plague. Moses goes back. Pharaoh, there's been all these plagues, bro. My God is doing his thing. He's going to bring more. He's about to kill the firstborn of every person in your nation. Let my people go. Eventually, Pharaoh relents, lets his people go, only to chase them down in the great final scene of that movie, and I guess history, and this really happened. Uh, they get to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. The Jews cross, the Egyptian soldiers run in, the water falls on, there's victory for the people of God. Okay, that story, that Pharaoh, we look back, we read that story, I read that story, and I'm just thinking to myself, like, God, man, Pharaoh must have been an idiot, right? There's no other explanation by just reading the story than to say, this guy just, you know what, he had a few things loose in there. Because plague after plague after plague after proof after proof after proof come to his nation, and yet he still says no. And then we read this. And then we read the rest of the account. And we see that behind the scenes, there was something else happening. We see that behind the scenes, it wasn't just a stubborn king. It wasn't just that he didn't hear properly. It's that the God and creator of the universe, of everything we know, our Savior, had hardened his heart that he might, in the midst of him being raised up, that God's power would be known to the world. That from nation to nation to nation, 
they would hear stories of the God that delivers. Stories of a God that saves a people. But does he save all? No, he saved just his own. Who in that story does he say? He saves his own people. He does not save all. Draws them to himself. They're set free and they're saved. Behind the scenes, God, author, orchestrator, giving mercy to some and hardening others. Again, hard stuff for us to wrap our minds around. So God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. The second question, okay? The second question, here's what I found interesting about the two questions that he brings up. Notice the first question, well, isn't God unjust? And I think that's the natural proclivity, I think, of us in the midst of being attacked and getting defensive. Someone comes at us and we usually go back at them, right? Someone says, oh, well, you do this. You're like, well, you do this, right? Oh, well, you're not, no, but you're, uh, And that's usually how we go. So we immediately go back, let's attack the character of the person that's trying to attack us. And that's what the question one one was, right? Isn't God unjust, right? Attacking his character, God is perfect, God is good, God is sovereign, okay, God is just. Second question, okay? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? So this one, farmer then, okay, that didn't work, couldn't attack your character, because God's perfect, I'm going to try and just defend myself. God, I couldn't help it. It wasn't my fault. How can you still find fault? Because who can resist your will? So if God has mercy and whoever he wants and hardens whoever he wants, then how does this, how can we be to blame, right? Now, here's the moment, the first time I read this, right? The first time I was starting to get into it and read through it and I came to verse 19, I was like, that's a really good question. Got him right? I was like, not going to take care of that one, God. And I fully expected right after verse 19, everything that I wanted to be said in the scriptures would be said. That everything I had thought after reading Jacob I loved and Esau I hated and talking about election and choosing before they had done anything good or bad, everything I wanted to hear about how it was my fault and it's free will and because I didn't choose him, that he didn't choose me and on and on, everything I wanted to hear so that I wouldn't have to wrestle with the character of God in the midst of this passage. I expected in verse 20. Let's see what he says. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So, I get to verse 20 and I have all these expectations. God finally delivered me from all of this strife in my soul. And what I get is, who are you to question God? Who are we to know his ways? Who are we to search his understanding? Who are we to think that we see as clearly as he sees? That we know as much as he knows? Who are we to answer back to God? And I remember reading that verse and just being like, dang it. Dang it. This is not what I expected. And then he goes on. 
doesn't the potter, doesn't the one who's making the item, who has the entire clay as God has formed us, does he not have the right to form us and shape us and mold us however he likes, for whatever use he likes, because he is the owner of the clay. He is the creator of the clay. And so again, we get this, these two realities, this Jacob reality of promise, this Esau reality of lack of that. And we see Jacob was used for honorable use in this passage and Esau for dishonorable. Again, this, this dichotomy, these two realities, Paul constantly hammering in by using Old Testament reference after Old Testament reference so that the people listening, so that the Jews would hear, uh-oh, it, it's not about me. It, it, it's not about what I, it's not about my will. It's not about my strength. It's not about my goodness. It's not about my perfection. It's just about Jesus. It's, it's just about Jesus. And he is the one piece in all of the promises given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Of all the promises given to them, the biggest one they missed was Christ, the Savior, the Messiah of the world. They looked right past him and look to themselves to say, I deserve this. And the same message comes to us. Um, if you guys ever seen the movie Rudy, great theologian Rudy, um, there's a scene where Rudy goes to speak to the priest. And the priest says, listen, there's, in all my years of ministry, and he's an older guy, probably 50 years of ministry, he said there's only two incontrovertible facts that I can land on. One, there is a God and two, I'm not him. And that is pretty wise. There is a God, and we're not him. So who are we to answer back? That's, that's the answer that Paul gives us, is to go back, instead of just appeasing the frustrations of our souls, he goes back to highlighting the character of God. Highlighting God making God big, making us small, which is the theme of the Bible over and over and over again. God is great. God is sovereign. God is good. God is faithful. God is, we are not good, not faithful, not sovereign, rebellious since day one. Okay. This is what God does. Let's keep going. It's about to get even harder. Probably literally for me, the two hardest verses in all of scripture, okay? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, again, like he had with Pharaoh, ready? Has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So what if God made, and we're talking in the clay mold, right? Made vessels that were meant for destruction so that the vessels that were meant for mercy would see the mercy, understand the mercy, and believe and proclaim the glory of God, the power of God, his wrath on sin. In other words, his full character, not just the parts we want to believe, but all of God to all of the world at all the time. What if God did that? I tell you, I, I read this, and it was funny because we're doing prep this week, right? And I'm reading this thing, and I'm like, man, this reads like an April Fool's joke. 
It was April Fool, right? It was April 1st, and I'm reading this thing, and I'm like, God, is this an, you've got to be April fooling me here. That's got to be what's going on. This is too hard. Just to lighten the mood for a second, Verity and I, we had a big little fun thing that we did on April Fool's where we continued to April Fool our dog. Um, he falls for it every time. It's fantastic. And so I, I took the food and then held it over. I was like, I say foodies, and he goes crazy. And, and then I just poured it back in the bag and said April Fool's, right? And, and you just saw his ears went down, tail went down, and he just fell over. I mean, it was just like, just, just rude. I'm awful human, right? Um, and, and then Verity later, we're, we're going to bed. And if we say Betty's or bedtime, he literally runs to his kennel, puts himself to sleep, right? That Caesar Milan of Christians, right? And so we, um, she, says, she says, like, we weren't going to sleep. We actually were going to let him hang out with us a little while longer, like you would with a little kid. And so Verity's like, bedtime. And he says, he's like, oh, you know, and starts running away. She's like, just kidding. Come on back. April fools, you know? And so, um, all that to say is we just needed a moment to smile, okay? Um, because what's being communicated here is really tough. It's, it's really tough. What if God, in order to show his power, in order to communicate his wrath, his full character, in order to communicate his glory, in order to communicate his mercy, in order to communicate his grace, in order to communicate every aspect of who he is to a world he wants to reconcile to himself. Did he prepare beforehand vessels for destruction that the vessels of mercy would rejoice, celebrate, and make much of our God? Okay. Again, I know there's some questions. Come talk. Engage. Don't run. Ask questions. Be around. Come to Theology Pub. Go to God. Wrestle with him. Wrestle with his character. Get involved, right? Don't run. Don't run, okay? Start wrapping it up here. Um, when I was first confronted with this, and I shared this story last week, but I said that I'd probably share it this week as well because I just, I want you guys to get, I understand, right? I understand the wrestling with, with these truths. The first time, and James can attest to this, James was there. Corey was there too. Um, Drew, man, we, we're just repping San Diego State right now. It's fantastic. Uh, the first time I was confronted with this stuff, I was in a car with my friend Allie, and we're sitting out in front of her apartment in Little Italy, San Diego. And she begins to share this stuff she's learning from one of her disciples, girl Misty. And it's a lot of this. And they're just going through Romans 9. She's just saying this and reading these verses. And I'm freaking out. Like, I'm just, I'm just losing my mind. And, I'm, and, and I say these words to her. I say, and I told you this last week, but I want to remind you. I said, if that is who God is, I don't want to serve that God. And I got out of the door, slammed it shut. I walked all pouty until I realized she was my ride. Got back in the car. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> you know, you're wrong though. You know, and so, and so I get it. And I wrestled with a lot of these questions for a long time. I mean, a real long time. When I kept coming back to scripture and I kept realizing that over and over and over in this passage and, and, and throughout the Bible, there's a common theme that's always communicated. And it's that God is sovereign 
and good and merciful and faithful and just and beautiful and graceful and forgiving and patient and peaceful and everywhere you look, every story pointing to the great character and mystery of our God. And then I just kept reading the Bible and I realized that every point of scripture, man is sinful and broken and rebellious and disobedient and all out just haters of God. And so what I landed on in the midst of this idea that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, there's this weird thing that happens when we hear that type of line. When we heard it last week, every gasp in the room, every breath that's lost is usually because we think, I can't believe he hated Esau. I can't. He hated Esau. How could he do that? When we see the Bible for what it communicates all over the place, the greater question, the greater shock must be for us of how in the world could he have loved Jacob? How could God, who is perfect and beautiful and gracious and great and sovereign, love something down here that hates him, that's rebellious, that acts on his own, that wants to be God himself? That's what we see happen in the garden. God didn't say that. I'm going to do my own thing. The part that should shock us is that God, not that he would have wrath or execute justice upon his creation. It's that he would actually save you. It's that he would send his son to live on this earth, to experience the persecution and hatred that he did that he would suffer in ways we'd never understand, that he would go to a cross to be crucified as a criminal. He would die taking the sins of the world, everything upon his shoulders. And he would raise in the third day this whole redemptive mission and plan culminated in this moment, Christ on the cross and Christ out of the tomb because he decided that although no one deserved it, he was going to save you. That he was going to save Jacob. That he was going to save for himself a people for his glory, pleasure, and our joy. We should be shocked that God would love any of us. We don't deserve his grace, we don't deserve his mercy. And so then knowing that we don't and then knowing that God then gives it anyway, there should be much rejoicing in the house of God. There should be proclamation of how great his name is that in the midst of all of our disobedience and hatred, he says, I love you and I'm gonna save you and you're mine. And all the promises that I gave you in chapter eight, how I will never leave you how there will never be separation, how you are adopted into my family, how you're set free. It's all guaranteed in Christ. 
Let's land with verse 24 through 29. I'm just going to read this and let it sit. It's going to serve as a transition for us moving into next week and then on into chapters 10 and 11 as we look at us grafted into the people of Israel and God's plans in the midst of that. Verse 24, even us whom he has called. Okay, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Again, us who sit here, who love Christ, have been brought in by his mercy you did not deserve. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out now concerning Israel. What's God doing with Israel? Though the number of the sons of Israel be as a sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, if God didn't decide to give mercy and decide to give compassion, destruction was the only route for humanity. That was where we were going. But God, through Christ, saves himself a people. Through mercy and compassion, that's how it happens. I want to land with a short reading, um, this final line from Chris Wright, just to sum up. And he's echoing the book of Revelation here. He says, salvation belongs to God. Salvation is initiated by God's grace, achieved by God's power, offered on God's terms, accomplished by God's son, secured by God's promises, and guaranteed by God's sovereignty. May he be honored and praised and glorified. And all in the family of God said, amen. Let's pray. God, let us just sit and just, uh, man, we are blinded. We see very dimly your character. We miss it. I miss it all the time. I forget. I, I just, I get clouded by my own thoughts, my own judgments, my own, I know better than yous. God, I just pray for everyone in this room. God, whether, whether we're Christian or not Christian, still figuring it out. I mean, whatever, Lord, I just pray that you would just take the wipers and just clear our vision right now. God, that we would just see you clearly as Paul exalts you, that we would exalt you. Would you give us the same vision that Paul had for who you were, who you are? Might we have the same? God, as we sit in the realities of your greatness and your majesty and your mystery, in your love and faithfulness, justice and wrath. God, as we sit in the midst of all of who you are, humble us, Lord. Might we see that no one deserves anything but Gomorrah. But in your mercy, in your faithfulness, in your justice, God, you save some. God, that you went, that you came, that you lived, that you died, that you rose, that we might experience life that we do not deserve. 
Would there be celebration in the house of God this morning because we've been set free, not of our own accord, not of our own will, but by the will of the one who made us? Any of those that would sit here, Lord, and they're just, they are, they're wrestling and they're fighting and I get it, Lord. We, more than anything, forget a right answer. Just be God to them right now. Bring peace and bring warmth. Bring truth. Bring your presence, Lord. God, they would just know. God, we're not going to have this all figured out. There's always going to be questions about you, O Lord. But God, that we would see you as beautiful and good and faithful amidst the work that you've done, both the ones that we deem great and the ones we deem fearful. Holy Spirit, work in people's hearts today. Save, renew, restore, and be glorified. It's your name we pray. Amen.